Translation is where I want our thoughts. So just try to get the, the macro view, the 30,000 foot view of Revelation. Revelation chapters 1 through 3, um, Jesus comes and the angel gives seven letters to seven churches. This is when the Apostle John was writing back in the 80s to 90s AD. And he gives these seven letters to go to the seven churches. Then chapters, chapter 4 in, and chapter 5 are a throne room scene where John is seeing the throne room of God in heaven and they are worshiping God the Father sitting upon his throne because he's the one who created all things. Chapter 5 is worship of Jesus, the Lamb, because he's the Lamb who is slain. And then chapters 6 through 18 begin to deal with um, something that's called the tribulation. It's a seven-year period in which the wrath of God is poured out upon planet Earth. And it comes with seven seals that are opened. Only the Lamb is worthy to open this scroll with the seals. And when he opens it, these seven seal judgments occur. Then, as the seventh seal is poured, is uh, opened, then we have seven trumpet judgments, where these angels blow trumpets, and there's seven more judgments on earth. And then, the seventh trumpet leads into seven judgments of bulls, where these angels pour out bulls of judgment upon the earth. And then, we get to the end of that, and chapter 18 talks about how um, Babylon has fallen, this great prostitute, which is in the book of Revelation a metaphor um, for probably for Rome, and how it has led all sorts of kings astray. It's a pretty powerful imagery through there, and someday maybe we'll get to work through it in our Bible study. But suffice it to say, that's what we've covered, is in this what we call eschatology, it's this end times drama of, well, what's going to happen at the end of the world? Well, we have seven years. It's kicked off by a guy that we affectionately or unaffectionately know as the Antichrist. Um, I don't know that he's called that in the book of Revelation. He primarily goes by the name the Beast. And this Beast... Like the, like the mark of the beast. Exactly. That's why we call it the Mark of the Beast, mm -hmm. is that these people, they get the Mark of the Beast in their foreheads because they identify and they worship the Beast. And the, the beast, he is doing the bidding of Satan himself. So we have Satan, and then we have the Antichrist, a.k.a. the beast, and then we have one more primary individual known as the false prophet. Um, sometimes these three are known as the unholy trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, or the beast, and the false prophet. And this false prophet does all sorts of signs and wonders, tricking people into worshiping the beast. And people are largely deceived on planet Earth during these seven years. It's a time of great judgment, of great tribulation, of great affliction on planet Earth. It's not going to be a fun place to be when the tribulation hits. It's seven years of pure torture. Nathan? Can't for the like, mark of the beast, can't they also get sip, sip, sip on their wrist? Yeah, so there's, yep, in the forehead or in the wrist. Mm -hmm. Gabe? I wish I could tell you for sure. But if we do that Revelation Bible study, uh, we, can, we can go and have a lot more talk about that. Um, but it is debated. People debate it. And... Yeah, Left Behind. Yeah, it's a very profound movie. 
great. Yeah. It is but yeah, Gabe, that's a good question. Do we as Christians get raptured before or after the tribulation or in the middle? And those are kind of the three, the, the three views. The rapture is going to happen, but when is the question? So we'll leave it there for now. But then we pick it up. Revelation 19 picks up the story um, at the end of this tribulation period. But let me first, that's kind of your introduction to where we are in Revelation. But let's tie it into our series for this weekend about brokenness. Okay, so we've talked about, um, we've talked about sin, which is the origin of brokenness on planet Earth. This sin of Adam and Eve that sent the world spiraling downward in corruption and brokenness. We had the corruption, the catastrophe and the flood. We had the confusion of the languages at Babel. But then we talked about how God set in motion a plan to redeem and to make all things right. First of all, dealing with personal sin through Christ and his cross work, but also the cross work of Christ, um, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ guarantees that God is going to bring about consummation, which was that seventh sea of the seven seas of history. Then we talked about in our last one, um, lament. How do we deal with personal brokenness? Well, we cry out to God with that darkness. John? Yeah, amen. So then finally, we, we end with triumph. Not only does God give us a path forward through our own personal brokenness, but God has shown us his path forward, his solution to cosmic brokenness. So that's our topic this evening. Dealing with cosmic brokenness. But I wanted to just wrap up a couple loose ends um, as it related to personal brokenness and then how it translates into some of the practicality of the study of the end times. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Like we were talking about earlier. We deal with brokenness in our lives. The brokenhearted, someone dealing with heartbreak or grief, the one whose spirit has been crushed, God says he's near to that person. Huh. That's incredible that God cares that intimately about our broken hearts. But then Psalm 51, 17 talks about a different kind of brokenness. Uh, this is Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession due to his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah. Um, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In the context, David is saying, I don't have a sacrifice that I can bring. Murder was under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, a sin for which there was not a sacrifice. David couldn't get forgiveness of sins because he had murdered. And yet David says, God, when I have a broken spirit, a contrite or a repentant heart before you, that's a sacrifice you'll accept. And God forgave David. And David remained as king over Israel. And he's even known as a king after God's own heart. It's incredible. Isaiah 66 brings a similar concept. But this is the one to whom I will look, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jeremiah 18 and 19 are two chapters where Jeremiah, the prophet, he goes into a potter's house and this potter, he's working with a pot, but this pot has, it's broken. 
And so this potter's working with it, but he takes this broken pot and he's able to reform it into a vessel that's useful. And it's a really cool scene. And then God uses that as a metaphor for what he does with his people Israel and with nations at large. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking. And now then he quotes God. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. And he talks about how because of Israel's sin against him, he is relenting or he's turning away from the good that he promised to do them, and he's bringing judgment in the short term. This is just before the 70 years of exile for Judah and Babylon. But can you think of an example of a nation that God predicted judgment for them, but then they repented, and so he turned from that judgment for a time? Don? Um, that one they didn't repent and they did get destroyed. Eric? Yeah, Jericho got destroyed. Rahab the harlot was the only one saved her and her family. Same in Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family. But Nineveh, Nineveh, this great Assyrian empire, remember Jonah? He comes and he preaches. And the Ninevites repent, one of the most wicked nations ever to exist on planet Earth. And God says, if they're willing to be broken before me, I will not break them. Wow, that's profound. Bring this practical application then home for us. James 4, 1 to 10 talks about what it looks like to be broken and humble before the Lord. Verse 6, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Realize, as we're talking about brokenness around us, this world doesn't function like it should. As we think about brokenness within us, our hearts and our minds and our lives aren't what they ought to be. There is a brokenness that's crucial, and that's a broken, a humble, a repentant spirit over our sin. And without that, God will break you. If you're unwilling to humble yourself and be broken before God, God will eventually bring judgment and he will break you. Just like we talked about in Obadiah. Edom, they went against God's people and God humbled them. But then Israel, once they finally humbled themselves, God promised he's going to restore them. It's the same concept. Following that, any thoughts or questions there before we move on to Revelation? Those are important loose ends to tie up because then it flows into this end times drama of how God is going to deal with this cosmic brokenness. So remember, just like we talked about with Edom, um, Edom, the bad news was that Edom was going to be destroyed. But it also came with good news for God's people, Israel. If they would trust in Yahweh, the one true God, they would receive restoration. Remember that? 
So God's judgment always brings bad news for his enemies, but it brings good news for his people. And Revelation 19 to 22 is the same. It's really bad news for the enemies of God, and it's really good news for God's people. So let's just do that. Um, we're not, we'll, we'll see. We might read through the whole thing. We've got lots of time. So Revelation 19 to 22 um, is, I would just encourage you, um, the book of Revelation can be very difficult to read and to understand. And if you think you understand it, just be careful because you probably don't understand it quite as well as you think you do. But I would really encourage you to read Revelation. Read it over and over. And read it in conjunction with the Old Testament prophets, specifically like Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Those guys have a lot to say about this end times stuff. Okay? But Revelation 19 to 22, it's really the culmination of the entire Bible. Is everything in history led up to Christ, but Christ's work, the cross work of Christ is finished, but he's coming again. Remember that? John 14, he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to go away. And he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will surely come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the hope we have as Christians. This world isn't all we live for. Jesus is coming back. He could come back today. So Revelation gives us, gives us this picture. So the beginning of chapter 19 talks about uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is, this is the, the wedding ceremony between Christ and his bride, the church. It's a beautiful picture. That's actually what John 14 was getting at, that Christ was leaving, but he was coming back. Because in the Old Testament, or sorry, in Judaism, that's how they did it. They would get engaged, but then the husband would go away and he would prepare a house for the wife. And then when he finished the house, he would come back and the bride had to be ready because that's when the wedding was going to take place. Well, that's what Jesus is doing right now for his bride, the church. He's in heaven preparing our living quarters, but he's going to come again to fetch us. It's really cool. So that's the marriage supper of the lamb, but let's pick it up. In the middle of chapter 19, um, we'll pick it up in verse 11. But before we read this, so on the screen, we're looking for some clues of how will God solve brokenness at the cosmic level. And by cosmic, I mean heaven and earth, just like Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. So there's two realms. We might call it the physical realm, what we experience, but also the spiritual realm. In other words, God, the angels, the demons, etc. Following me? So God's not going to just deal with brokenness right here where we experience it, but cosmically throughout all of creation. All right? Okay, so look for that. But then something else to look for is, remember, Eden was paradise. God's creation week ended and he says it's very good. God didn't make any mistakes in creation. We're the ones who messed it up. However, that same goodness that God started with in Eden, in the, in the original creation, he's going to restore that kind of paradise in the new creation. So what I want you to do is look for some of those clues of what was in Genesis 1 and 2 and what God's going to bring back 
Revelation 19 to 22. Make sense? Are you with me, Nathan? So, if God said it was very good, was there like sin in the world before we sinned, or did we like bring it into the world? Yeah. Technically, if we brought it in, that means sin isn't the cause of brokenness. We are. Fair enough. But, yeah, so yes, there was sin in the world before us, um, only because Satan was cast down from heaven. We weren't engaged in it. But we weren't engaged. And there wasn't the brokenness in the world yet. Because Satan was like, he was on foreign soil at the time. But once Adam and Eve made the decision to partake of that fruit of the tree, their sin was what brought the brokenness in. So it's like it started off with that small little... Satan's like slithering around, and then as soon as mm-hmm. we messed up, it kind of like exploded into this huge mess. Exactly, this huge mess. That's a good way to put it. First thing he ever said was a question. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll notice when he, when Satan intervenes or tries to get after uh, Jesus in the wilderness, it's questions. Yeah. Trying to get you to question yourself. Satan wants you to condemn yourself. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind it's of like a fish tank in a way. It was already there. Satan's just the one who gave us the hammer to smash it. Right? You could. No, that actually makes sense. That is completely Well, just so you just say it's it's like if you have a fish tank behind a glass window, all the stuff, like all the sin and the bad stuff, is contained behind the glass. Satan just gave us the hammer to smash it. It was whether we smashed it or not. Sure, sure, Nathan. Nice. (laughs) Okay, one more comment as we think about that. One more thing to think about. When Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just that sin entered creation. They also gave authority over to Satan. Because who was king of planet Earth prior to the fall? Adam was. God gave Adam dominion over everything on planet Earth. Adam was king of the planet. But now, 2 Corinthians calls Satan the god of this world. The king over Earth right now Now, it's delegated authority. God is still in charge. But the king on earth is Satan. But then the beauty is, the last Adam, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, will once again take back to humanity the kingship over earth. Jonathan? So it's kind of like the protector calling. But basically, it seems like like Satan rules everything, but... Yeah, that's right. Satan can't do anything that God doesn't permit. Sean? So is it kind of like um, like the U.S. government like you've got like Biden and then like Joe Lombardo type of thing? Like, like, or it's like there's someone higher. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying. Yeah, you could think of it it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. The only, I mean, the illustration breaks down because Joe Lombardo, his authority is not actually delegated from President Biden. Biden doesn't have a say over what Joe Lombardo does because the states actually have more authority than the federal government. But yeah, that's maybe a, that's one way to think about it. I know, me too. All right. Well, then let's get into Revelation so we don't waste all the rest of our time.
But we, we're picking it up here in verse 11. And we'll read 11 through the end of chapter 19. Then we'll pause, make some observations, what we're noticing, okay? So we're observing, first of all, what God's going to do to solve brokenness. And second of all, how he's bringing things back to paradise, like he originally created it, okay? Chapter 19, verse 11. And I, this is now John speaking, he's seeing this vision. He says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Pause real quick so we're not missing this. Who's the guy sitting on the white horse? Is that Jesus. Jesus is. Isn't it a powerful image? He's sitting on a white horse. He makes, he in, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His name is faith. He's called faithful and true. He has a name written on him that only he himself knows. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. Something really important when you read the Bible is use your imagination. God gives us these descriptions so that we picture it. Do our imaginations do it justice? Probably not. But that's why God gave us an imagination as we get to start now. So picture this. Jesus is sitting on this white horse and his eyes are on fire. We learned earlier, like Mr. Bob read last night, Revelation 1. He has white hair. He's wearing many crowns on his head. How's a guy wear many crowns? I imagine that, like, it's not, I, I, at first I imagine that, but, like, as if, like, through, like a bunch of crowns were, like, molded together. So there's, like, a bunch mm. of, like, well, it yeah, it makes more sense in my head. But, you know, Jonathan? It makes more sense I, I don't think that yeah. crowns are, That's what it like, is. Maybe. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth, Jesus, the word of God, sitting on the white horse, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast. Now, remember, who's the beast in the book of Revelation? Antichrist, yeah. He's, he's uh, Satan's puppet king on earth. The, he, he says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, 
and with him the false prophet that worked miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So just picture the scene. The Antichrist has so deceived the people of planet Earth, not only have they received his mark, they've worshipped his image, but he's convinced them that they can defeat Jesus Christ and the armies of heaven. And they lead a march against Jesus Christ and against the armies of heaven. I mean, try to picture this. What are they taking to war? What's our most advanced warfare technology? Jesus. Jesus, okay. Can you just picture it? They're taking tanks. They're taking Blackhawks. They're taking stealth planes, F-16s. They're taking drones. They're taking satellites. They're taking intercontinental ballistic missiles into warfare against Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He wipes them all out with the sword sticking out of his mouth. The rest of the armies don't even have to do anything. Okay, so, so we're pausing here. Let's make some observations. What is Jesus going to do about cosmic brokenness so far? What have we learned? He's just obliterating all that have opposed God. Yeah. He's unstoppable. Okay, so just like we just commented and like we talked through Obadiah, all of God's judgment has bad news for his enemies and good news for his people. We just looked at the bad news for his enemies. Anyone who is still alive by the end of the tribulation, this is at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back to earth. He brings these armies with him. Anyone on earth who's still alive and they march against God is going to be destroyed. And that's the bad news for the enemies of God. But now let's start into Revelation chapter 20 and talk about some of the good news. John says, And I saw an angel come down from, from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Okay, so pause there. Any parallels you notice to Genesis in verses one through three? There's a serpent, I think. Did you see that? A serpent. What'd you say, Eric? Serpent. Yeah, we have a serpent. Why does he call him that old serpent? That ancient serpent. That's right. That was Satan's first appearance in the Bible was Genesis 3 as a serpent. And this is one of the this is one of the supports of how we know that that snake in the garden wasn't just a snake. That was Satan taking the form of a snake. He calls him that ancient serpent. Hmm. Maybe. Well, yeah, it, if you read through Revelation, it seems that he's a red, fiery dragon is how, how he's depicted. 
Sounds like a pretty dangerous guy. But isn't this cool? I mean, think about this. He's the one who's deceiving all the nations right now. But at the end of the tribulation period, this heaven come, this angel comes out of heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and some chains in his hand, and he wraps Satan up in these chains, and he casts him into the bottomless pit, and he locks him up there for a thousand years. So he can't deceive the nations for a thousand years. What's a bottomless pit? No bottom. No. Yeah, I was wondering about that because it mentions it like a lot. Like, what's the song number two? Yeah. Zach? Well, and that's the question. Is that on earth? Is that uh, in the spirit realm? Probably in the spirit realm that we just, we can't experience currently. Yep. So then the identity of the locusts is another question. Are those locusts like just oversized locusts that somehow genetically were modified or are these demonic locusts coming out of okay so it goes into a whole lot of other things but we'll have to save it that's why we got to do a revelation study you guys but probably uh, in the spirit realm nathan Yeah. It's like you're there forever, not like you're falling forever. Like the place is like you're stuck there forever, not what you're falling. Otherwise, I've kind of figured that body's doing something else. So he's not just falling. Otherwise, no, it's See, it's a good question. Well, it's actually it's different than hell, because did you guys notice where did the where did the beast and the false prophet get cast? They got cast into the lake of fire. Satan, this old dragon, is cast somewhere else into the bottomless pit. Maybe. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. We gotta, we gotta, this is really good stuff. And we'll discuss it more in our revelation study. I know, it's really good. Okay, verse four. John says, and I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay, pause there. We didn't read the rest of Revelation 1 through 18, but these are people who were martyred during the tribulation period because they wouldn't bow to the Antichrist. Exactly. Verse 5. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them a thousand years. Okay, pause there. Thoughts or comments so far in verses 4 through 6. Okay, then let me go to our next slide. This is, a, this is an important question. First of all, what is resurrection? Brought back from the dead. Yep, brought back from the dead. And let's be specific, brought back from the dead never to physically die again. Go ahead, John. Restored. Restored. There is a restoration that occurs in the resurrection. 
We don't just get this same flesh and bones back, but God gives us what is called a resurrected body or a glorified body, like unto Christ's glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 talks a lot about that. Maybe. But think about this, okay? There's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Remember Jesus' friend Lazarus, John chapter 11? Jesus calls him out of the grave. He was dead in there four days. But did Lazarus die again? Yes, he did. That's what is a resuscitation. It's different than a resurrection because in the resurrection, we will never die again. But there's at least four resurrections. First of all, obviously, Jesus' own resurrection. Um, John 20 talks about it. The Gospels talk about it. Act 1 talks about it. 1 Corinthians 15 talks a lot about it. And the connection between Jesus' own resurrection, how that's then the first fruits and a guarantee of our resurrection as followers of Christ. That just as we partook in his death and in his suffering through our salvation, death to our sin, and through the suffering that we may experience as followers of Jesus on earth, we will also partake in his resurrection. Okay, so we have Jesus' own resurrection. Um, then we at least have three more resurrections that take place. First Thessalonians 4. Let's just flip back there because it is very pertinent. But keep your finger in Revelation. We're coming back there. So Gabe asked the question, will we be raptured before the tribulation? And that is a very important question. Um, it's one of the more debated questions when we come to talking about the end times. Um, but it is one where there is a variety of answers. People, good people, disagree. And uh, <laughs> Pastor Jeff quotes a professor about a different point of theology, but it applies. Um, what's he say? Oh, come back to me. Um, I have friends on both sides, and I agree with my friends. How's that? Get it? So I have friends on both sides of the debate, and I agree with my friends. So we'll put it that way for now. We can't debate when the rapture will take place tonight, but 1 Thessalonians 4 is one of the premier passages on the rapture. So pick it up, verse 13. Who, anybody want to read for us? 13 to 18? First. We might pick someone with half a voice left. <laughs> it's okay. Sean, you got it? Read First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18 for us. Okay. First uh, Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Okay. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye shall sh sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, also which sleep in uh, also which sleep in Jesus, and what God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. And we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep to the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice, with the archangel, 
and with the trump of God. And the dead in and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be be with the Lord wherever comfort one another with these words. Perfect. Thanks, my friend. So Paul, he's using this to in to encourage and comfort the Thessalonian believers because he doesn't want them to be ignorant or unaware of what happens to a Christian when he or she dies. Because death is scary. Let's just be real for a second. Death is scary. None of us have ever done it before. <laughs> well, I sure hope not. But no, but seriously. Death is scary. I'm a scared spirit, guys. Death is really scary. Death is one thing that terrifies me most on earth, honestly. Sean? You know, one thing I like about death is it the first time will be the last time. Just Amen. For a Christian. Yeah. That's right, Nathan. The one thing that my mom told me and that I've kind of gone by is that I shouldn't be scared of death because as long as the fact that I believe in Jesus Christ it's not really a scary thing. Because it's like leaving a place that's terrible and going to a place that's awesome. That's right. It's like leaving from Las Vegas to go to Salt Lake. Or no, not, not Salt Lake. <laughs> Disneyland. <laughs> and that's what Paul's getting at is we don't have to fear death. It's only natural as humans that death is scary because God didn't design us to die. Remember, we talked about that in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were supposed to be able to eat of that tree of life and live forever on earth in paradise with God. So death is unnatural. It was not intended. However, it's a, it is now a byproduct of brokenness on earth. But we get, this, we get this understanding that there is a resurrection of Christians that takes place at the rapture. Now, depending on when you time the rapture, that... Um, that does affect this, but we have resurrection of church age believers at the rapture. Okay. The rapture, that's just a word that means to be caught up. Um, so we have this resurrection of Christians there. First Corinthians 15 also talks about how in that time we will not all die or he calls it there. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And that's what Paul's getting at that we will not we will not prevent those who are asleep. In other words, the Christians who have already died, they get to resurrect first, and then a Christian who's still alive at the time of the rapture, then they are raptured, and both of their bodies are then changed. Okay? Following this so far? Then, um, let's go over to John chapter 5. Jesus gives us a little bit more um, details about the resurrection number 3 and number 4 on the list. And if you're wondering when are Old Testament saints' bodies resurrected, um, that's a good question. Probably in number three. John 5. We're looking at verses 25 through 29. All right, ready? John 5, look at verse 25. 
Truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and will come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation or of judgment. Okay, now go back to the book of Revelation. Jesus gave us two categories there, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. Realize resurrection is guaranteed to every human who's ever lived. However, those who have done good, in other words, those who have been saved through faith in the one true God, they're resurrected to eternal life. But let's find out what happens to those who have done evil, or in other words, rejected God's salvation. Where did we leave off in chapter 20? Um, let's pick it up in verse 5 again. Oh no, we just read, that's right, we read 4 through 6. So we have... Um, this is what's called the millennium. So, well, we'll come to that. But we have a resurrection at the end of this millennium. Millennium is just another word that means a thousand. So that thousand years that Satan's bound, Jesus is reigning on planet earth as king. Really cool. And we get to reign with him. We're his, his underlings. Zach? How does your sins like long time? Agreed. Yeah, we're actually going to talk about that. So hold it for just a second. Like 90 seconds and we'll get there. I'll, I'll, hold on just a second. Okay, all right. So verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And he says, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So we have this resurrection. He just described it as those who were martyred during this tribulation period. And assumedly then also other believers, this resurrection for life. Um, we partake in that. But then he talks about he says, blessed are those who partake in this first resurrection because the second death can't touch them. But then we have this resurrection of judgment, as Jesus called it, also known as the second death. Just also look down to verses 13 to 15. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades, or hell, that's like Sheol, what we talked about, that holding place, the temporary before the eternal lake of fire. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, those are your four resurrections. Now, we could probably get tedious and try to dissect some of this and do a more thorough job with it, but we've at least got these four. Jesus' own resurrection, the resurrection of Christians at the rapture, the resurrection for life after the or before the millennium, and then the resurrection for judgment after the millennium. Okay, and the resurrection for judgment is anyone who rejected God's offer of salvation. You following all that, or did I lose you? 
Does it halfway make sense? Okay, good. So then let's talk about some just, this is just one cool millennial detail. Zach brought up a uh, thousand years sounds like a really long time. Does anyone die during this time? Okay, so think about the people who are on planet Earth during this millennium. First of all, we have Jesus Christ. He's obviously not going to die. We have any of these <coughs> believers who have been resurrected. So the Christians who have been resurrected at the rapture, as well as any Old Testament saints and any tribulation saints who are, ra or, sorry, who are resurrected at the beginning of the millennium. If they've been resurrected, can they die? No, they can't, because they have a glorified body like Jesus' glorified body. But are there people who will die during the millennium? Yes, there are. Look at Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man will die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Okay, so even the worst people who die early on earth during this thousand years, they're gonna die at a hundred years old. They'll call him a young person if they die at 100. So under Jesus' reign, there's incredible, enormous peace, prosperity. Think about just the global shifts that will happen when there's not mankind rampantly sinning under the deception of Satan on planet Earth. So there is an elongation of their lives. But there is still death. So who are the ones dying? Because at the end of the tribulation, all of God's enemies got destroyed, remember? So there's none of God's enemies going into this millennium. No. Follow on that? Because Satan, he got cast into the bottomless pit. Antichrist and the false prophet, they're in the lake of fire. And then all of the rest of the people who had received the mark of the beast, they got wiped out by Jesus' sword when he came back. It was a bloodbath, Remember? None of God, God's enemies go into the tribulation, sorry, into the millennium. So only those believers in Jesus Christ who had not received the mark of the beast, who also survived seven years of tribulation on earth, which is a very small percentage, those are the only humans with non-resurrected bodies who go into the millennium. Then they have children. Now we have that first generation, they're all believers in the one true God, in Jesus Christ. But not all of their children are going to be believers in one true Christ, even though he's reigning as king on earth. Some of them will desert Jesus' reign. And we're actually going to see that in a second. But let's grab some hands real quick here. Adrian? So you're saying that um, they'll be still non-Christians at that time? Not, not going into the millennium. All the enemies of God got destroyed but the offspring of some of those first generation of millennial believers, yeah. some of them will not trust Christ. Does that mean that, um, that they can um, still believe in Christ afterwards? We'll talk about that. After the millennium, you're saying? Mm -hmm. Good question. It'll answer it for us. Aiden? Wait, so... Okay. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> okay, never mind. So, like, I think I, think I got it. You're good. Don't worry, Seagull. You can't use the English either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody's here, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else there? Or should we keep rolling? Zach? Well, it will be the new generation with Jesus' reign, and then it'll be uh, like used to Jesus in a way. So they won't care as much as uh, one 
familiarity will breed contempt. All right, let's see what um, Revelation 20, how it answers this question of what happens to these people who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ during the millennium. Because John, he, he anticipated this. Pick it up in verse 7. So he had that battle at the beginning of the, right before the millennium. That's what's known as the Battle of Armageddon, okay? So if you're just trying to anchor some of these thoughts to terms you've heard, that's the Battle of Armageddon. Now we have this battle... Um, called the Battle of Gog and Magog. That's verse 8. So, pick it up in verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, okay, Jesus has been reigning on planet Earth now for a thousand years. Satan has been bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So he couldn't deceive the nations. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed out of his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Uh -oh. hmm. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. What's the beloved city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's right. Jesus is literally reigning from Jerusalem on planet earth Satan comes back out of this bottomless pit once he's loosed, and he leads an innumerable army, as numerous as the sand of the sea, from all corners of the earth. They come up over the breadth of the earth. Can you picture it? It's like, arm, and it's like an army of ants. They just cover the entire landscape. And they're coming, and they surround God's holy, his beloved city, the encampment of the saints. And what happens? End of verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's what happens to all of these individuals during the millennium who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ as king. Not only are they not believing, but then when Satan comes back, he deceives them. Once again, if they only knew what happened a thousand years earlier, that the last army that marched against Jesus Christ got wiped out by the sword of his mouth. They think they can lead one last rebellion against Jesus under the leadership of Satan. Satan must be really deceptive when you think about it. Hmm. Yeah, how would you manage him to do that twice? And Maybe that first Peter five eight verse we talked about um, in our at least our young our men's study earlier this morning. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Realize Satan's way more dangerous than you give him credit for. It appeals to our arrogance and, you know, the people that march on the second guy, they're probably think, well, this guy's the first thing before, you know, right? That's right. And this time, fire just rains down out of heaven and devours them. We've seen that happen a few times before in the scripture, huh? Mm -hmm. So Jesus doesn't even come down there. He just, like, you know, pulling the airstrike. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting because the first time it was Jesus wiping out his enemies. This time, the fire rains down from heaven which is assumedly God the Father, because Jesus is king on earth. Huh. I bet they will be. They're like, yes! We've been waiting for this day! <laughs> That's right. Okay, verse 10. Verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, 
and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is the first moment where there's no more sin on earth. All of God's enemies have been destroyed. The beast and the false prophet are gone. They're in the lake of fire. And now Satan himself has been cast into the lake of fire. And this is important. Realize it says they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Some people want to say that the lake of fire, that hell isn't real, or that maybe it's just extermination. In other words, you cease to exist. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's conscious torment for all of eternity. The flame never dies. The worm continually eats the people there, and they're never consumed. Hell is not a place of party. Eternal suffering. Eternal suffering. And if that doesn't move your heart to compassion for the lost, I don't know what would. But, verse 11, John says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And we already read verses 13 through 15 that talk about the sea giving up their dead, death and Hades giving, they're being cast into the lake of fire. And this is that second death that he referred to. This is the resurrection for judgment. Ezekiel? How, the, how can the sea give up their dead if the earth is gone? You stole Earth's not gone yet. Yeah, so on this, this one who's sitting on the great white throne, the earth and the heaven flee, flee away and they can't hide from him. But earth's not gone yet. Yeah, it's just under new management. It's just under new management. That's a good way to put it. But earth's not gone yet because that happens in chapter 21. We're about to read it. So we've talked about these four resurrections. Are you ready to get into chapter 21? Yes. Mr. Bob? You know that... Uh, Talking about they went into the lake of fire forever. I was thinking about that Psalm 80 where they, in the seven it says, talks about the Lord's or God's wrath lies heavy upon me and overwhelm me with all the ways. Like that endless, because you think about like on our you know, things, it seems like it never stops. Yep. Uh, the waves and the ocean. Yep. It seems like his wrath, when you heard talking about an 80 or whatever, his wrath is like just all your ways. The waves. Maybe that's why it's called a lake of fire. Hmm. Okay, let's get into chapter 21. Because chapters 21 and 22 are some of the most hope-filled chapters of the entire Bible. They're really cool. Okay, verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1. John says, and I, saw, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Okay, pause there. Because... Revelation doesn't give us the detail of what happened to the old heaven and to the old earth. So 2 Peter chapter 3 gives us this. Go ahead, Zach. Do we need a new heaven? God must think we do. Okay, 2 Peter 3 
Verse 7 says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And then verse, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And then he uses that as um, a motivation for us to live holy, um, holy lives now, looking forward to that coming of the day of God when everything's going to be melted down and remade. So that's what happens to him. God judged earth by water back in Genesis 6 to 9. In the end, he'll judge it by fire. But not only the earth, but he'll also burn up heaven and restart. Adrian? So he practically uses a hose the first time and then a flamethrower the second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just on the, on the cosmic level, must be pretty big. <clears throat> okay. But then, so John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Did you notice what is there not at the end of verse 1? What is no longer in this new earth? Oh, that's interesting. There's no more sea. Okay, let's keep rolling. Verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof in a hundred and forty and four cubits. How much is that? 144. It's about 225 feet tall. These walls are. One cubit is 18 inches. 
18 inches. So you divide it by two and then multiply it by three. So it's about 225 feet tall, 220 feet tall. These are some pretty massive walls. 185 meters. There you go, 185 meters. The, this city is enormous. But let's keep reading. And he, so, and he measured the wall thereof, and 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. That's some pretty pure gold, so pure that it's clear like glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasis, chrysoprasis, the eleventh a, a jockeying, the twelfth an amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river, water of, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of, the God, of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must be shortly done. Behold, I come quickly, Jesus says. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I heard them, when I heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. He says, hey, don't worship me, worship God. And then he's, John is instructed to seal the sayings of this prophecy. Um, and the book of Revelation, it ends. But we're focused on, go ahead, Gabriel. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'm just opening up for discussion here. Go ahead. It's perfect timing. Yeah. So I wondered if we slept at all. It doesn't seem like it, does it? It doesn't seem like it, does it? Yeah. 
Okay, so what we're doing, what we're doing, we're looking for these parallels. Um, going back to, going back to, we were looking first of all for how God is going to deal with cosmic brokenness. And second, we're looking for how God is bringing things back to the pre-sin state of paradise. How he's making all things new. What do you see from that? Adrian? It's a good question, isn't it? How do we enter into the mind of God and understand how he would permit such catastrophic things as a result of Adam and Eve's sin? How would he allow that to ruin such a good creation? But then, how would we get to see God's justice, but also his love, without sin? And God, he made out of such a mess, something so beautiful as the new heavens and new earth. Mr. Bob? I was just thinking, kind of to build on that whole idea is, if you think back when we are talking about in Genesis where there was really no dark, and talking about the light, mm-hmm. there was a little bit less light, but there was more light during the day, whereas with here, it sounds like there's just, you know, it's totally light. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a difference. And I think that that might illustrate or indicate I like it. Yeah. Amen. That's good. Dominic? Um, A lot of, I know that for a fact that a lot of (coughs) non believers, (coughs) several times already, um, non believers ask, why would a just, such a good God allow all this to happen? It's because he gave us free will. That's right. God doesn't force us. God gave us free will. So all of the brokenness in this world is because of man's free choice to reject God's good plan. Now, it doesn't mean that every bad thing that happens to someone is a result of personal sin, but sometimes it's as a result simply of the brokenness in a fallen world. But that's good. It's because of free will. That's right. John? This is one of my favorite concepts of the Bible, how the end will be like the beginning. Yeah. Amen. So let's try to make some observations with specificity of in what ways is the end going to be like the beginning? It'll be new. No. Paradise. Well, it'll be perfect. He talks about all the things that there won't be. There won't be no sin. Yeah, no sin. (laughs) Okay, so there's no more sin. That's done. Yep, that's... uh, That's a good observation. Adrian? There'll be no stupid weather like 
we have in Nevada. <laughs> it's true. The weather is going to stabilize a little bit. Jonathan? No more stupid people. Jonathan. Exactly. You're right. You're right. The sin makes us stupid. Zach? Yeah. These questions are going to begin to be answered as we get to sit under the tutelage of Christ himself. Amen. Nathan? People will stop sending me church. <laughs> Ezekiel. <laughs> Moving on, Zoe. Oh, did you guys see that? This is a really cool one. The tree of life is there. Isn't that awesome? Don't eat this fruit. What? That's right. Not that tree. This is the tree of life. But did you notice how many kinds of tree, uh, how many kinds of fruit this one tree produces? Twelve. One for each month. Isn't that cool? Like this tree's got to be awesome. Or is it the same tree? Same tree of life. Could be. Yeah. Well, so remember, in the garden, we had the tree of life, and we had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were allowed to eat of the tree of life. God said, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were supposed to eat of the tree of life and eat and live forever, but they didn't. And so then when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they sinned, and they were banished from the garden. They were banished from the garden so that they could not eat of that tree of life, because otherwise... They would eat, and theoretically, they would continue to exist forever in a sinful, corrupted state. You follow that? So there's no more tree of knowledge of good and Tree of knowledge of good and evil is gone. It's just the tree of life now. We can't mess this up. Okay, I was like, is there just right? for all to happen over again? I know. Miss Catherine? Right. That's right. So think about this. So what Miss Catherine's bringing up is this millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years on earth. We get to be here for it. Some of us, it's really hard. I mean, think about this. We have a hard time fathoming that heaven is forever. And we feel maybe like heaven is just going to be this eternal church service up in heaven. And it's kind of like, that sounds great, but I might get a little bored. Like, I already fall asleep in church as it is. You know, if this is an eternal church service. But that's not the picture of eternity we get. We have the millennial reign in which we're on earth. But did you notice where we get to live for all of eternity? What happens? John saw something coming down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem. It comes down out of the new heaven onto the new earth. And it says in this new Jerusalem on the new earth, there's no temple because what is the temple? What is God's dwelling? God himself and Jesus. It says God and the lamb will be the dwelling thereof because God's going to dwell again with his people. That's profound. We're actually going to live on the new earth, is what it sounds like. 
that's really cool. I mean, come on. Because we can't hardly fathom living in an eternal state as just spirits floating around. Don't worry, we're not. We get a body. We're still human, just in a glorified state. I think that's really cool. Dominic? Um, one thing that I'm, I like thinking about is for the new earth and the new heaven. We're all going to be able to walk with God because he's able to be it everywhere at once. Amen. It's good. We all get to walk with God. Zach? So um, do you think that any of God's angels will still be able to fall? Does it even say anything about that in Revelation? It's a good question. So did you notice? Let's find the, the verse I was looking at. Um, no, you're good. You're good. Zach's like, I just keep falling asleep. Okay, look at verse, uh, look at verse 27. Look at Revelation 21, verse 7. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the picture we get is no. No more falling angels. They can't, they're not going to be sinning against God. So that's the difference between our old heaven and the new heaven in the fact that God's angels can still fall. Maybe that is a good difference to point out. I knew what you meant. I'm with you. Jonathan? Is there still hunting and fishing? Because I really enjoyed the river. Good question. Maybe. There was a river. There was a river, and there will be animals. So basically, I can throw a fishing line and have no guilt. We might have to wait and find out. It doesn't sound like there's going to be much death. So we'll see what it looks like when we get there. What? John? Uh, immortality, we're united with Christ. Forever. Amen. Immortality, and we're united with Christ forever. It's good. Zoe? So, the tree of life, it says the leaves are used for the healing of the nations, but we, they don't need to be healed then. Maybe the nations are still struggling with some of that brokenness from before. This is like and that's what God heals. I don't know. Somewhere in there. Maybe, uh, yeah, we don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> Mr. Bob? Maybe this question, we'll know when we get there, but you know, people talk about wanting to do hunting and fishing, but because we're glorified, what the contentment that we have or the contentment we might derive from our hobbies now may not be, we might, we might feel differently about doing those things because we will be better. The other thing you're talking about parallels, if you look in Genesis, it talks about how God wants to walk with us, walk with us in the school today. And if you look at Revelation 3, it says that he who knocks, it's kind of going back to free will, someone mentioned, he who answers the door, he knocks the door and you answer it. Mm -hmm. He will come in and he will eat with me and spend time. Yeah. So you're getting to spend time with God again, but in mm -hmm. a very personal way. So they're still eating, evidently. Evidently. And Jesus ate in his glorified body. Yeah. So yeah. We wonder about past times of eating. Yeah. 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 
We still get food. <laughs> there must be chocolate in heaven. <laughs> Jake? Wouldn't that be cool? Playing hockey with Jesus. As long as Jesus isn't goalie. I agree. There are a lot of questions. I think it's interesting because he talks about there's not going to be night. They don't need candles. They don't need the sun because the Lord God gives them light. So like I'm picturing that God's presence is dwelling localized in Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem on the new earth. But the whole earth, it seems, doesn't need the sun, moon, and stars. So, like, God's light and his glory is filling not just Jerusalem, but it's going throughout the whole earth. It's a lot of light. The goal's transparent. The goal's transparent. That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. Uh, Adrian. Um, so, here, you know, that just, just Jerusalem is what the Bible talks about. What about the rest of the earth? Yeah. It seems like it. Yeah. And not only that, but we're reigning on earth for all of eternity. Yeah. Amen. Jonathan? Okay, two questions. One, my feet are sweating. Is that normal? Could be. What's your second question? Second of all, so can we just like talk with God anytime? It's a good question. It seems like we have open access to God. That's right. Somehow, right, somehow, right now, God is fe- God is uh, God has given all Christians open access to Him, and He's somehow managing the fact that there's 
hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of Christians praying right now, and he hears them all and is having a personal interaction with them through his spirit, I bet all the more so he'll be able to handle it in heaven. sitting in this room but we can't see him like he's just with us mm-hmm. he's just like yeah <laughs> like, yeah I would just imagine like playing, playing the games where you have to lie or like keep a secret or something I start playing mafia in a room kind of Jesus is like you're all disappointed I parents say that too maybe that was the wrong illustration I followed what you were getting at though Aiden? I kind of thought about what Simon was saying about faithfulness and that reading like how it's described like this beautiful city covered in gold and all these jewels and that all we need to do is devote ourselves to him in faithfulness and then we get all of these things in return and it just kind of makes me think about that a little bit more. Yeah, man. It's good. And how almost like small, this this little portion of life is compared to everything that's promised. Yep. It's kind of crazy to think about it. Amen. And you know what? That's part of why we get this incredible glimpse of what heaven's going to be like, what eternity will be like, is to help us know whatever we go through on earth, it's short and it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Amen. John? Um, I already answered this question, but so about the millennia, the saints, so if we died before the thing, would we be the saints, called the saints? Would we serve as the saints if we died before the millennia? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think I understand your question. Yep. Well, you're already a saint. Technically, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're already a saint. Eric? You know, you know, that's a good question. A lot of people have that question. We know for sure, we know for sure once we're in the, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no more tears. So we won't have that, that shame that we experience now. Um, will we remember life on earth? Probably. Yeah. But the evil will be behind us. Because remember... What does Jesus still bear in his glorified body currently and for all of eternity? He has scars in his wrists and in his side. And I don't think we're going to quickly forget what those are for. We, yeah, we don't know. Our bo- we don't know what our bodies are going to look like. I imagine it being like us in this new heaven and No more of sin or its corruptions. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like our, like, how we think and everything will kind of be rewired in more Amen. of the perfect way. Amen. We probably won't like, think about or really like 
acknowledge that a lot of the sin stuff, and I feel like probably just do just <coughs> for sure. No more temptation, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That'll be great, Zach. At the same time, though, there are still like millions of people in the Lord has wired who their souls are only to be there to burn. But the point of the point of these heavenly visions aren't to just make us be like, wow, I can't wait for what God's going to give me. But it is to think about the lake of fire because there's two eternal destinations. There's good news for the people of God, but it's really, really bad news for God's enemies. But we as ambassadors of Christ living currently on planet Earth have the opportunity to herald this gospel message that Jesus died for our sins and for theirs, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he ascended, but that he's coming again and that there is coming eternity that's worth so much more than the pleasures of sin for a season. And this understanding of the eternal destiny of unbelievers should motivate us. It should be something that captivates our vision It is. It's sobering. But that kind of makes it a little bit less when we think about being afraid of what our friends might think of us when we share the gospel with them. Because you know what? If they really knew how bad hell's going to be, they would just be thanking you so much for caring enough for them to tell them the truth. It is truly moving. Um, I just love he how he brings out. Let me find what I was looking for here. I've always wondered, like, when people burn in the lake on fire, like, when you get, like, if you get hurt enough times, you get used to it. Mm-hmm. But, like, you probably, I mean, you never get used to it. But Not in hell. Yeah, I don't know. Just, <laughs> just sort of think about, like, just even, like, eternity in itself is hard to think about. Mm-hmm. But just feeling pain for eternity because you think eventually you just get used to it but yeah. it's just like a weird concept even like eternity in heaven that's a weird thing to think about like yeah. I mean at least it'll be like what we're doing now with no sin and no temptation forever mm-hmm. and like to the right like uh, alongside God but just to think about like it's just uncomprehensible like yeah. of eternal burning I know. So like, I don't know. It's just really weird to think about. Yeah. But that's why I got to think about heaven and Pentecost with God. Yep, I agree. <laughs> that's right. Jesus talked a lot about hell in the Gospels. It's a really important topic. He actually, I think, talked more about hell than he did about heaven. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. That's right. Eric? Yeah. Apparently not. No remorse. I don't know that it's quite like that, but... 
Yeah, it's that's that's in chapter 21. I wanted to draw our attentions to it. Verses three and four. Heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what Garden of Eden was supposed to be, God's dwelling with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. But then we get this just moving scene where he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we can feel a little bit more compassion than that like right now. literally posted up a sign saying, lake of fire this way, turn back and go the other way. Mm-hmm. People are like, where's that? Keep going straight. But you know, just, I mean, it's true. The unbelievers have condemned themselves. But just think about how dumb we are. God's given us everything we need to know. And if you're a follower of Christ... How many times do you mess up? We are such failures. My parents say that too. Well, but without God, think about it. On our own, we would have never accepted God's free gift of salvation. If it wasn't because God drew us, used his spirit to help illumine our hearts and minds, we would be lost too. So just beware of a of a calloused, approach to the unbeliever they're lost in their sin yeah because they're rebels against god but hopefully we can have some compassion for them like god did god loves them just as much as he loves you you know those people they want contentment just like we do mm-hmm. they want to be loved they want to find that assurance and when you get past being scoffing or being angry at them you just become so sorry for God didn't save us because we were awesome. That's for sure. John? God's humor? Won't that be fun? Wait until we get to hear God's jokes. It'll be better than any dad jokes we ever heard. Jake? Just one second, Jake. Hey, just like you guys have been raising your hands and wanting to talk, and everyone's tried to be respectful of you, Jake is being, he's talking now, so please be respectful of him. Like, but like, 
thing about like um people always say about God, like what about like people in different world countries or that never get missionaries? Do you think like God speaks to them in different ways? Because what does it say that everyone has a choice or has like a moment in their life where they could decide? Yeah, so I think Romans one and two are some of the best answers to that question. So God has given two different forms of revelation. We have the scripture, which is called specific revelation, but God has also given, not everyone has a copy of the Bible and not everyone has someone to preach it to them. But God has given what's called general revelation, which is general in its scope. In other words, everyone from every culture, from every time, gets to experience general revelation. And it comes in two forms. First of all, in creation. And creation teaches us a few things about God. That he exists, that he's eternal, that he's powerful, and that we're accountable to him. God has also given us a conscience. And Romans 1 and 2 describe this at length. Our conscience helps us understand what is right versus what is wrong. So that we just inherently know when you're a little kid and you tell your first lie, you feel rotten about it. You might not have even been told ever that you shouldn't lie, but you know that lying's wrong, and that's what's called a conscience. Everyone has those two forms of revelation. Everyone can understand it. Even someone who's blind and deaf, they have a conscience, and they can experience God's creation through their feeling and through their own um, psyche as a human, part of God's creation. Those forms of revelation are inescapable, and... I firmly believe that someone who positively responds to God's general revelation, God will then give them additional light. So think of like the Ethiopian eunuch. He's praying and God brings along this preacher on the road randomly. He brings him, he, he literally moves. Is it Peter who preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch? Or No, that's Philip, right? Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. God brings him there to preach to this guy. Why? Well, because this Ethiopian eunuch was reading the Old Testament and he wanted to know what it meant that this Messiah was coming. Don't you have to, like, know that Jesus died on the cross for you? But, like, I don't understand how they could, without anybody telling them that, how they could understand that. That's what I'm saying. So if they respond positively, in other words, they say, God, I know you exist, and I know there's something right and wrong, but I don't know enough. Then they are calling out for God to show them. God sends someone to tell them the gospel. And there's actually, there's missionary stories of this where remote tribes never heard the gospel before, never seen someone from outside of their tribe, and they say, there is a God, and we need to know him. And they start praying, and God sent missionaries to them to tell them the gospel. But Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. No one goes to hell because they didn't hear the gospel. Anyone who goes to hell goes to hell because they suppressed the truth that God did give them. Does that answer it? That is one of the most difficult questions. Dream or something that someone from those tribes never dreamed of, like, it 
Yeah, and absolutely. Can God still speak through dreams? Absolutely. Okay, well, one more slide. So we talked about what happened to the old heaven and the old earth. Um, in Revelation, we saw, um, he says, there's the tree of life in this, in this new Jerusalem. It said there will no longer be the curse. I love that because it's like the curse that has been riddling us since the dawn of time is done away with finally. Um, he says the sun, moon, and stars are gone because God is, God is the light there. But what about the serpent? God's making all things new except there's one thing that's going to still bear the mark. Isaiah 65 gives us some more details. You could go and read that if you want. It's about the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and it's actually, we should just read this section because we're so much over time now that three more minutes won't make any difference, right? Whoever's asleep's already asleep, and whoever's awake is probably awake. I know. We're doing really good tonight. Good job, you guys. Isn't it fun? It's really fun. Thanks for keeping them awake. Well done. Okay, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, pick it up in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Okay, that helps us a little bit about that question of how much we'll remember. That's the question we may not remember. Yeah, we really may not remember everything. But, he says, verse 18, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping will be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat, for as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Okay, so we're building houses, we're engaging in agriculture. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the bullock. Oh, that's interesting. That sounds a whole lot like the pre-fall. Back when the lion and the lamb all were hanging out together and the lion didn't devour the lamb. But look at what it says in the middle of 25. <laughs> and dust shall be the serpent's meat. The snake never gets off of his belly. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And then God launches into a beautiful picture of his, how big he is. Thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me and where is the place of my rest? And he keeps talking, but. So the serpent never gets off his belly. He still has no way to put it in his. <laughs> <laughs> John? So, the the good and not Good question. Yeah. Is there memory in heaven? We don't know for sure. 
it down. You gotta think like we have a knowledge of what we need to have a knowledge of so that we're perfected in a certain way. And if we, if the, the old things fade away, what, what does the knowledge of shape the people that are suffering now? What would that serve us if we're perfected? Mm-hmm. What need do we have of that knowledge? Yeah. Of that memory? If we're made perfect. That's true. Isn't this fun? So, as you think about it, we're thinking about that topic of brokenness. We look at a world that's broken. We realize that sin is what broke it. We ourselves deal with personal brokenness, brokenness, and God has given us the voice of lament to carry those sorrows to God. But God one day will restore all things. He'll make all things new. He'll wipe away all those tears. There's no more pain, no more mourning, no more suffering. And that's the concept of brokenness. Any closing thoughts on that? Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Huh? I really wrapped up. I really well.